You're listening to Tell It from Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Dr. Abraham Joseph. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here's today's message. Thank you, Gregor sisters, Nakisha, Natalie, for all that you do in serving our body. And thank you, Naomi, for serving coffee so we are all awake to listen to this beautiful singing. <laughs> thank you, Mick and Per Anders as well for uh, this time of worship. Also want to thank Andrew Dixon for reading the scriptures so well. I wish I had his deep voice. <laughs> well, let's go to God in prayer. Father, how great is your grace that we have gathered today to hear from you through your word and by your spirit. Incline our hearts to you, to your word today. Comfort us, admonish us, instruct us. Empower us for faith and obedience that we may be witnesses through life and word to the ends of the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We ask in the mighty name of your Son, our Savior. Amen. I've been away from uh, Texas since January when I came to New York. Uh, they have visited me here a few times, but I haven't been back. Uh, this evening, God willing, I will uh, fly, to be, fly to Texas to be with them till Saturday. Uh, I eagerly look forward to being with them uh, this week, to drawing close to them and being in fellowship with them, uh, with my family. Uh, th that is something I look forward to, but this morning we are going to look at something that's a far greater drawing near and fellowship of previously separated people that has taken place through Jesus Christ. We who are far away, alienated from God and his people, have been drawn near by the work of Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ, through, the, through his work on the cross, his sacrificial death, he has brought us near to God and his people. We have been drawn so near to God that we have been established as the household of God, his holy temple, and our fellowship with one another is eternal. The story we are going to look at this morning is also a before and after story like we saw last week. Last week was a death to life story. This week is a distance to nearness story. We were far now we have been brought near. We were aliens, now we are citizens. We are strangers, now we are family members. We were godless, now we are God's temple where he dwells. We, uh, we know this outline well. Paul began his epistle with a, with a greeting to the Ephesians, uh, wishing them God's grace and peace. And that led to an outburst of praise, a doxology, praising the triune God for his blessings that he has poured out upon us, especially our redemption. He then prayed that God would grant us greater understanding of the blessings that we have received, the hope of our calling, the, the worth that God has placed on us by making us his own inheritance, the power of God that is in us that is ours to live the lives that exhibit his 
redemption. He then further elaborated on the greatness of God's power, how it was demonstrated in the resurrection, in the exaltation, and the appointment of Jesus Christ as sovereign over all powers. Paul disclosed to us that Jesus, who is exalted over all the powers as Lord, is given by God to the church as its head and to fill it with himself so that God may gather all things under Christ through the church. This morning we uh, are in the second chapter. We saw the, the first part of it last week where, God, where Jesus Christ is exalted over all powers. Where's the proof for that? And Paul gives us two lines of evidence. We saw the first one last week. The first line of proof was Christ's victory, of Christ's victory over the powers uh, is us. We who are dead and in bondage to the world, the devil and the flesh, we have been made alive. We have also been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenlies. The powers are defeated and, uh, and are under the lordship of Christ. Proof our life from death and freedom from the powers. We are now a new creation in Christ Jesus to do good works that he has prepared for us to do. What a change that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins and in bondage to the devil and the flesh and the world are alive, living the life that God wants us to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. Today uh, we look at the second uh, line of proof that Paul presents in the second half of chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. The second line of proof for the defeat of the powers and Christ's lordship and sovereignty over them uh, is that we who were formerly alienated from one another and with God have been brought together. The powers held us, especially Gentiles, at enmity with God and his people. God has overcome that enmity and has reconciled us to each other and to himself through the work of his son. Jew and Gentile, formerly alienated from one another, have been united as one new man, the body of Christ. Christ overcoming our distance from one another and bringing us to nearness with God is the second line of evidence for his victory over the powers. Please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 22 in five parts. First, I tried to alliterate this time. I'm not very good at that. First, our, all the P words here. All, first, our plight before Christ in verses 11 and 12. Secondly, the price that was paid by Christ in 2.13. As a result, we have peace with one another, 2.14 to 16. And more than that, we have peace with God, 2.17 to 18. And the consequence of all of this is that we have been established as the people of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul begins with a therefore connecting this passage to the previous one. Therefore, since we have been made alive with Christ, raised up with him, and are new creatures empowered to do the good works that God has prepared for us to do, therefore, Paul exhorts them to remember. This word remember, this is the only 
imperative in the first three chapters. The only command in the first three chapters. And Paul is primarily addressing the Gentiles here. He says he wants them to remember who they were before all that God has done for them in Christ. Not so that they would be stuck in the shame of the past, but that they may better appreciate the change that God has worked on their behalf through Christ. He calls them to a constant awareness of both who they were apart from Christ and what they are now in Christ. The word uh, Gentiles uh, is, it was the designation for all who were not Jews. All non-Jews were Gentiles. It's the word for nations. The Ephesian church probably consisted mostly of Gentiles, but they probably did not think of themselves as Gentiles. They thought of themselves as Romans, as Greeks, as Scythians, um, and so on. However, in relation to God's people, the Jews, they were Gentiles. And they were called the uncircumcision by the Jews. And that's a derogatory term as far as the Jews were concerned. These people were non-Jews. They were uncircumcision. Uh, they were people from whom they were to separate themselves. They did not bear the mark of circumcision, the covenant sign that God had given the Jews as a mark of their relationship uh, with him as his people. Uh, this covenant sign of the circumcision has be had become a thing of pride for the Jews. But Paul here is quick to relativize the importance that the Jews placed in circumcision, even as he does in Romans chapter 2. He says, circumcision of the of this skin remains a useless external symbol when it is not accompanied by an inward circumcision of the heart that is the life lived in uh, faith and obedience to God I had a professor who used to tell me that uh, a circumcision without faith and obedience is like a Timex watch in a Rolex case uh, what's outside doesn't matter what's inside it makes the difference so Paul calls this circumcision a circumcision made in the flesh by hands. The phrase uh, made by human hands is used in the Old Testament to speak of idol making. So while the Gentiles are to remember their status as Gentiles, that is people who are not in a covenant relationship with God, Paul also reminds the Jews that they can't pride themselves as God's people if all they had was an external marker and not hearts that were turned toward him. The reality is that both Jews and Gentiles were estranged from God. Meanwhile, uh, Paul reminds the Gentiles to remember that they were Gentiles. That is, people who were not in covenant relationship with God as were the Jews. Their plight as Gentiles were fivefold. Paul says, first, they were alienated from the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. They would not even have known what Israel meant by Christ or Messiah or the Anointed One. They would have no eager anticipation for the Messiah to free them from their plight as the Jews did. Secondly, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. As Gentiles, they were not part of the political and social entity called Israel that God had constituted through His covenants and His promises. Citizenship back then was about community, about privilege, about honor, about identity. The Gentiles did not share in the political and social identity of Israel. They were aliens. Thirdly, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. As Gentiles, they had no awareness of the gracious covenants that God had made with Israel to make them his people and the wonderful blessings that were promised in those covenant relationships. 
Paul had those primary covenants in mind, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with David, and even the new covenant. All these covenants included the Gentiles, for example, in the passage that Andrew read for us this morning, the Abrahamic covenant promised blessings to the nations. But the Gentiles as Gentiles had no knowledge of these covenants. They were strangers to it. Fourthly, they, were, they had no hope. Paul does not mean that the Gentiles were in despair all the time. They were not even aware of their hopelessness apart from Christ. They were headed for judgment and eternal separation from God and no hope of overcoming this hopeless situation, yet they had no clue of the future because that future God has revealed only to his people, even as we saw in chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, that God was gathering up all things in heaven and on earth under Christ to make them new. Finally, uh, they were atheoi, the word from which we get atheists. Now, they were not atheists in the modern sense of the term. They actually had plenty of gods, so-called gods. But they were separated from the one true God, the creator of the universe, the God of Israel. They had many gods, but they were without the one true God. So Paul calls them to remember this, their past, not as an end in itself, it was a reminder that would make them aware of what great a salvation that God had accomplished for them. As a matter of fact, the only way they could remember the past was from the vantage point of their new relationship with God in Christ. Only from this new perspective, as God's people, they can begin to appreciate the immensity of their plight and God's great rescue through the work of Christ. It is to that rescue that we turn in verses 13 and following. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you, you, who, were once, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Once again, we have an, an exuberant uh, outburst of joy. It was, but God, in chapter 2, verse 4. Here it is, but now in Christ Jesus. The grim plight of the Gentiles, and the Jews for that matter, has been overcome by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. While the previous section focused on what God had done in Christ, the focus in this section is on Christ, his blood, his death. Paul introduces the language of far and near that he will employ throughout this section. In their plight, as Paul had just described, Gentiles were far from God and his people. But now, two happy words when associated with what Christ has done for us, for those who have been far, who have been brought near. They have been brought near to the Messiah, to the covenants and promises of God, to hope and to God himself. Notice the use of the passive, you have been brought near. They didn't draw near themselves. They have been brought near. What has brought them near is not their initiative, but the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. Of course, the resurrection is assumed here, but the focus is on the death of Christ. We hear an echo of what Paul said earlier in the doxology. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. And by that same blood, we have been brought near to God and his people. The sacrificial death of Christ on the cross not only redeemed us from our sins and transgressions, as we saw in the previous section, it has brought us near to God and his people. Paul will unpack this brought near in the rest of the passage. We have peace with God and his people through the death of Christ.
in his greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul wished the Ephesians grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The passage last week was all about the grace that God has lavished upon us in Christ. This week, it's all about the peace that God has brought through the work of Christ. Grace and peace are recurring themes throughout this epistle. Paul weaves together in this section a theology of the Messiah and his peacemaking work from several Old Testament texts as evidence of his claim that Christ has overcome the powers that seed our enmity and hostility with one another. Christ has brought us peace. It's good for us to read this text first so that we can hear their echoes as we go deeper into Paul's argument in chapter 2 verses 14 to 18. Jesus the Messiah is our peace. He has made peace. He proclaims peace. All of this is in fulfillment of what God has foretold through the prophets. In Isaiah 57 19, peace, peace to the far and to the near. We just heard that in verse 13. Says the Lord, Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Paul will talk about the Messiah proclaiming peace in Ephesians 2, 17. Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Next verse, Paul is going to tell us that he himself is our peace. Micah chapter 5 verse 5 says the same thing about the Messiah, and he shall be their peace. And finally in Zechariah 9 verses 9 to 10, a passage we will consider next week for Palm Sunday. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The Messiah who was expected was the Messiah of peace. And that's what Paul, uh, Paul would argue throughout this section from verses 14 through 18. We read in verses 14 to 16, uh, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Interestingly, Paul first speaks of the horizontal peace, that of reconciling people to each other, before he speaks of the vertical peace of reconciling all people to God. The Messiah has brought near those who are far. How did he do that? Paul tells us that the Messiah himself is our peace. And he has made peace between Jews and Gentiles by making them one, by creating a new entity in himself. And he has done that by removing the barrier between us that caused the hostility. He has reconciled us to each other through, uh, 
through his death on the cross and he has made peace by eradicating the hostility between Jews and Gentiles making them one new humanity and has reconciled them both to God we read he himself is our peace peace shalom in the scripture is more than just an absence of conflict it includes friendship happiness well-being prosperity health even salvation a right relationship with God Paul tells us that the Messiah himself is peace even as we read in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and Micah chapter 5 verse 5 Jesus Christ is peace personified even as he is truth personified he himself is our peace and he has made us both one Paul tells us that he has made the previously divided Jews and Gentiles into one he has brought the conflict to an end this is the beginning of the fulfillment of what God has revealed even as we read in chapter 1 verse 10 that he is uniting all things in Christ things in heaven things on earth the work has already begun bringing Jews and Gentiles together in himself God has begun to do in the church what he will one day do for all creation and he's done that Paul writes by destroying the barrier abolishing the law Christ has made us one breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances we read before now, there's much scholarly debate about these verses what is the dividing wall what does it what does it mean that Christ has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances what is what is clear is that what he has done he has done in his flesh again a reference to his death on the cross although Paul may be uh, using the, the dividing wall as a metaphor for the hostile uh, barrier between Jews and Gentiles he may actually he may have an actual physical wall in his mind there was a four or five foot wall between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews in the Jerusalem temple there was a sign posted there were signs actually many of them posted that declared that a Gentile who crosses that wall to leave the court of the Gentiles to come into the court of the Jews would do so at the risk of being put to death a couple of those inscriptions have been found and you would also recall that Paul was arrested on the charge that he had taken Gentiles into the court of the Jews that wall was a visible symbol of the hostility between Jews and Gentiles the barrier that kept them apart and kept the Gentiles from approaching God that literal wall still stood when Paul was writing this epistle but the hostility that it represented and the barrier it created between the Jews and Gentiles had been destroyed through the work of Christ Paul tells us that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances again uh, this has generally uh, generated much scholarly discussion uh, here's how I understand it not that that's the final word uh, the law was given by God Paul calls it holy righteous and good in Romans chapter 7 verse 12 he also tells the Romans that because of the work of Christ the law is not overthrown but upheld in chapter 3 our Lord himself said that he had come not to abolish the law but to fulfill it so what then does Paul mean here 
when he says Christ has abolished the law, the, God's purpose in giving the law was to distinguish, distinguish the Jews and the Gentiles so that through that difference, Jews could be a light to the Gentiles. The law was to lead them to holiness that would witness to their relationship to God. But the law in the hand of sinful human beings, as Paul describes in Romans 7, had instead become a prideful instrument of claiming superiority, claiming privilege, circumcision, washing, sacrifice, dietary choices, the festivals, had all, had all become tools that created enmity and hostility and barriers between Jews and Gentiles. The law which was meant for life, even as in the Garden of Eden, had instead become an instrument of death at the hands of sin. Who will rescue us from this wretchedness, Paul asks in Romans chapter 7? Christ. Through his death on the cross, he has inaugurated the new covenant. Those who have put their faith in Christ are no longer bound to the law as it functioned under the Mosaic covenant. Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ are now under the law of Christ. Those aspects of the law that differentiated between Jews and Gentiles, such as circumcision, no, no, no longer has to divide those who are in Christ. Make no mistake, however, the righteous requirements of the law, which reflect the character of God, those are not set aside. God still requires His people to be holy. However, that holiness is not accomplished through obedience to the law in the power of the flesh. God will accomplish the righteous requirements of the law in His new covenant people through the Spirit who writes the law of God in our hearts, empowers us for obedience, and brings up about in us the holiness that God requires. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And he did this, Paul writes, to create one new man. Even in the previous section we looked at in verse 10, we were told that we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared for us to do. Christ, by making Jew and Gentile one in him, has created a new entity. That is the body of Christ. The new man is a corporate identity. Create Christ has created a new community, the church, the body of Christ, uh, where our differences don't need to divide us. Why? Because the one who unites us is greater than anything that divides us. Paul would remind the Colossians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, this doesn't mean that a Gentile has become a Jew any more than a male becomes a female when they trust in Christ. It does mean that our primary identity before, whatever they, they, they were, they have all been superseded by our new identity in Christ. Who are we? We are in Christ. We are Christians. We are the body of Christ. That's our identity, first and foremost identity. And in doing that, He has made peace. What has been previously divided has been united in Christ. And that, my friends, is how Christ has made peace between 
the Jews and Gentiles by uniting us to himself. And he has reconciled, we are told, both to God. Not only has he made peace between us by uniting us to himself, he has reconciled us both to God. We have peace with each other and with God through Christ. Horizontal peace and vertical peace go together. We can't separate the two. Those who are at peace with God are also at peace with all others who belong to God in Christ Jesus. And he has put to death the hostility. Christ has reconciled us both to God. Paul repeats in one body through the cross, again referring to the death of Christ. When Christ was put to death on the cross, he was not a passive victim. He himself, by his death, was putting to death the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, between God and all people. The cross, an instrument of death, we saw last week, was the means by which God brought dead people to life. Here, the cross, the ultimate expression of hostility and enmity, has been turned into an instrument of peace by the one who hung there, taking away the barriers between people and between God and all people. We have peace with one another through Christ. We also have peace with God. We read in verses 17 to 18, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ is not only peace personified, and not only has he made peace, Paul tells us that he preached peace to those who are far off, that's the Gentiles, and those who are near, the Jews. It's not just the Gentiles who are estranged from God. The Jews too needed Christ, the Messiah, to make peace between them and God and with the Gentiles, and Christ has done just that. Paul has in mind both the, the preaching of, by Christ himself and also his apostles who preached peace after the Pentecost. Angels rejoiced at the birth of Christ of peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, Peace I live with you, leave with you. My peace I give to you. At his resurrection appearances in John chapter 20, twice he says, Peace be with you. He also preaches peace through his people. Paul, uh, Peter tells Cornelius uh, and his household in Acts chapter 10, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15, he will call his message the gospel of peace. As a result of the peace that Christ has accomplished through the cross, we have peace with God. And Paul tells us, through Christ, Jews and Gentiles have access in one spirit to the Father. What a profound Trinitarian statement. We who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, can approach God through Christ in the spirit. We have access to God not through the law, but through Christ and by his spirit. Those who could not go beyond the court of Gentiles, and those who could, not, could only approach God from a distance and that with a sacrifice, both now have access to God through the sacrificial death of Christ, which has forever removed the barriers between them and between them and God. We can approach the throne of grace. We can gather in his presence in worship. Why? 
because Christ has taken away the hostility. He has removed the barriers between us and between us and God. What's the consequence of all of this? Paul writes in the last verses of this chapter. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In verses 19 to 22, he lays out the consequences of Christ's work of peacemaking on the cross. Gentiles who were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants, without hope, without God, have now, because of Christ's death, through which he has drawn them near, they have become citizens of God's kingdom. They have become family members of God's household and the temple where God dwells. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Notice that he doesn't say that Gentiles have become citizens of Israel. Instead, they have become fellow citizens with the saints. The new man that Christ has created in himself through his work on the cross, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, are together the saints, the holy ones of God, God's kingdom citizens. Secondly, we are family members of God's household. Gentiles who are without God have become members of God's household, brought into the family of God. Those who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, have been adopted by God as His children in Christ. He is our Father. We are the members of His household. Finally, those who are in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are being built into a new structure that as the apostles and the prophets for a foundation and Christ Himself as the cornerstone. Christ, the cornerstone, holds the whole structure together and directs its growth. Paul's language here suggests a growing building, being joined together and growing, he states. God himself is doing the building of this structure. God dwells in and among us, the people whom he has gathered to himself through Christ and the Spirit. Those who are in Christ are individually and together the temple of God. As those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and united to Christ, God is present in us and among us. What a glorious before and after story. We were dead. We've been brought to life. We were far. We've been brought near. We were enemies. We are now reconciled to each other and to God. We were without God. We are now God's holy temple where He dwells. And all this is part of God's master plan to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. Well, how then should we live? 2, 11 to 22 has reminded us that salvation includes not only reconciliation with God, but also with His people. How is this great reconciliation accomplished through the work of Christ? How is it the script for our lives? How do we live this reconciliation? The first thing Paul tells them is to remember. As I said, there's the only imperative in the first three chapters. Remember. God's people are forgetful people. The festivals of Israel and what we will do toward the end of this service reminds us that we don't remember. Remember is a, is a common biblical injunction. Remembrance is vital for us too. Why? First, 
remembering who we were and that we are who we are now only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus keeps us from pride and triumphalism. There's no room for boasting for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Calvary Baptist Church, we cannot boast in our heritage or our location, our past, or even our future, except as evidence of God's grace to us. We are to give God all the glory. Second, remembering who we were and that we are who we are now only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus encourages us to press on in the midst of present difficult circumstances. God has brought us from death to life, from alienation to the most intimate relationship with Him and others. If so, He is able to help us accomplish all that He has called us to do. No wonder Paul writes to the Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. As Calvary Baptist Church, we don't allow our present circumstances, whether due to the pandemic or lack of a building, to keep us from our mission to engage this city and impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We press on seeking new innovative ways to stay on mission. Do sign up after the service for our local global summer short-term mission trip. Thirdly, remembering who we were and we are now who we are only by the grace of God in Christ Jesus renews our hope. We may not have a building. Many of our people have not returned to our gathering. Uh, we appear diminished compared to what we used to be. But don't despair, Calvary. Renew your hope in Christ. The future of the church is bright because of the Lord who keeps his word. He will raise us up. We are called to remain faithful, hopeful. We don't look to return to what we used to be. We look forward to what God will have us be. That is hope. Not only are we called to remember, this whole passage is about the unity that God has accomplished in bringing Jew and Gentile together in Christ and forming this one new entity. When we think of salvation, we think of our forgiveness of sins. And salvation includes that. But today's text tells us that also accomplished on that cross was the unity of those who were previously divided from each other into one new entity that God has created. Our Lord has staked our witness to Him on our unity. He prays for the apostles in John 17 that we may be one. Why? So that the world may believe that the Father has sent the Son. Our unity is our witness to the world that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. Our unity matters. A divided church does not have a witness. To create conflict in the church is to work against what God is doing. God, is, God takes this unity very seriously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys the temple... God will destroy him. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's talking to believers. Addressing believers who are attempting to destroy the church by causing strife and division and conflict. How about us, Calvary? Are we united as a body? One of my joys in serving here uh, is the general sense of unity among the elders and deacons. 
I also rejoice in our unity in how we have and are dealing uh, with the racial hostilities in our culture by standing for what is just and standing with the victims of injustice. But if you're honest, we are still tempted toward division. What are the issues that cause conflict among us? How do we go about addressing them? Would people who see us as Calvary know by our unity that God has sent his son into the world? God is in the business of knocking down walls and demolishing hostilities. Will we join with him or work against him? To work for unity in the body is to work with God in what he is doing. To create disunity in the body through strife and conflict is to align ourselves with the powers that have been defeated by Christ and are subject to him. Finally, this passage is all about peace. We saw in our text today that Christ himself is our peace. He has made peace and that he preached peace. We are called to the glorious work of bringing peace on earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. God is a God of peace. Jesus himself is our peace. We ought to be in our Father's business as ambassadors of reconciliation in every dimension of life. Do we strive to work out the differences that we have with each other or we walk away from one another? We need to live out our peace, the peace of Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our communities and our churches by both word and life. We are inviting people uh, to the services for the Holy Week. But if our outreach is limited to inviting people for our Sunday gatherings, uh, we are no longer functioning as the New Testament church. See, the church is called out from the world only to be sent into the world to proclaim peace. Uh, researchers are telling us that the re-entry ramp for those who have left the church during the pandemic will not be the Sunday gathering. If that's true, of believers, how much more of unbelievers? We can no longer settle for telling it from Calvary. We need to go tell it, Calvary. What can we do to bring God's shalom to the broken homes in our apartment complexes, to the underfunded schools in our city and the children, to the new immigrants and refugees who feel lost in a foreign culture in our cities, to teenagers who are struggling to know who they are, to single mothers struggling to raise their kids, to lonely men with no friends who are contemplating suicide. How can people of God, people of the peace of Christ, bring shalom to a hurting world? We were dead. God made us alive in Christ. We were far away from God and his people. God has brought us near to him and to each other in Christ Jesus. We were far away from God and his people. He has brought us near. Let us remember what he has done for us in Christ. Let us pres preserve, persevere in the unity of the spirit. Let us live to the glory of God as peacemakers who proclaim peace. Let us pray. Father and our God, uh, we see another aspect of this great salvation that you have accomplished us for through your son Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection. Not only have you made us alive with him, raised us up with him, exalted us in him to the heavenlies, we see, together, we see that you also brought us together, 
that what we enjoy in Christ with you, we enjoy not by ourselves, but together with all of your people. And that is the witness that you have established to the world, that even as you have gathered us up together to be one people, one day you will gather all things in heaven and on earth under Christ and make them new. Help us to live out their witness, that witness in, in our unity, in how we relate to one another, how we love one another, how we settle our conflicts. And may your name be honored and glorified together, not, not only in us as Calvary Baptist Church, but as your church in this world in which you have placed us to be your witnesses. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.